0: Titans run amok in the digital world. Era-defining concentrations of power and resources tread heavy and roughshod over the public debate, over free speech, and over our right to privacy. All in a race to profit from our attention, our data, and our content. How were these giants born, and how did they come to dominate our online lives? What does it mean for us? And how might we take that power back? Welcome to Taming the Titans, a new podcast from Human Rights Organization, Article 19. I'm Emily Hart, and over the next five episodes, I'll be examining the monopolies in our pockets, in our homes, and in our offices, through a series of conversations with experts all across the world. We'll be zooming in on the tiny number of companies on whom we rely for communication, information, discussion, and even public services. Conglomerates like Meta, which owns Facebook, Instagram, and WhatsApp, and Alphabet owner of Google and YouTube, as well as Microsoft, Apple, Amazon, TikTok, and of course, Twitter. We'll be looking at how power has concentrated in the hands of the extremely few, what that power looks like and what its dangers are, and finally, at the regulation of monopolies, which will be a key tool for breaking the tight grip of these tech giants and putting at least some of their power back into the hands of the user, the individual, us. This handful of companies now dictate the terms of our freedom of expression and privacy online, people around the world rely on social media not only to communicate and share their content and views, but also as a major source of information about politics and current affairs. But these are not neutral spaces, nor are they managed in the public interest. They're run for profit, funded by ads in an economy of attention, grabbing it, holding it, and manipulating it, all the while collecting and selling mountains of data on all of us, fostering screen addiction, and with this, distorting public debate and making vast sums of money. This is how many of the richest men alive made their billions. But hope may be coming over the horizon. As harms become undeniable, a conversation is gaining momentum around competition law, which has been disastrously underenforced for decades, but which can form checks and balances on the hulking corporate powers we currently face. Competition law aims to protect or reinstate the competitive structure of the market, ...to keep it open and fair so companies can compete on merits and innovate... ...and so that consumers have choice. This can work against exploitative relationships between business and consumer... ...and between businesses. The truth is, we're pretty badly treated by the social media platforms... ...so many of us spend so much time on. Content is prioritised and censored. Users are suspended and replatformed. Data is taken and shared or sold. And we have no way of knowing the underlying logic or even what's going on at all a good deal of the time, much less having any way of contesting or negotiating the terms and conditions we're being subjected to. The decisions of a few corporate executives, mostly in Silicon Valley, now have more influence over human rights online than the decisions of elected officials, and their policies to ensure our rights on those services are patchy at best, mostly short-sighted and ineffective, and completely disingenuous at worst. Those decisions affect the entire planet, and as well as doing damage to online rights, they spill over and contribute in very real ways to physical violence, from the United States' capital attack to the genocide in Myanmar and ethnic violence in Ethiopia. These companies have sprawled across the world, offering the same services to users everywhere they can, without much adaptation to the particularities of their local contexts, quickly becoming global entry points to the internet. Services like content moderation, especially outside of the English language or Global North context, are hopelessly underfunded, as well as being ill-adapted to their particular political and cultural contexts. If it's true that users in California are forced to accept unfair and often invisible terms of service in order to use dominant platforms, it's doubly true for a user in Malaysia or Argentina. In a functioning market, we'd be empowered to shift away from these sorts of vague and abusive terms and away from companies behaving badly to other platforms, offering better, friendlier terms, which protect our expression or privacy. In the same way that consumers in non-digital markets might be able to shift to producers offering products of a higher quality. In digital markets, and especially when it comes to social media, we don't have real options. We're locked in with the big platforms. Competition is about restoring the conditions for markets to deliver alternatives and for people to be able to choose. Though this is, of course, no substitute for human rights standards, used together, the two approaches can start to crack open the black boxes of these companies, diminish their uncontested power, create accountability, and improve human rights outcomes for all of us. This year, the European Union passed the Digital Markets Act, an ambitious new regulation pushing for contestability and fairness in digital markets, both for businesses and for people. It's a big step, and it's likely to resonate across the world. Whether it will work as a template outside of Europe and how implementation will look is yet to be seen. But one thing is clear. The conversation about competition law as a way to keep the digital titans in check is just beginning, but its potential is huge. During this series, we're gonna be talking to experts from across the field and getting answers to the big questions. How did we get here? Where do we want to end up? And what will we need along the way? So welcome to episode one, the March to Monopoly. We'll be looking at how these titans came to be and what our chances are of bringing them back down to size. Today, I'm talking to Nick Shackson and Marta Tudon. Nick is an investigative journalist and co-founder of the Balanced Economy Project, a new anti-monopoly organization dedicated to protecting democracy and tackling monopolies and excessive concentrations of economic and financial power. Marta is Digital Rights Coordinator at Article 19's Office for Mexico and Central America. For decades, markets have operated amid a neoliberal consensus in which state-imposed regulation has been considered an undue limitation on free enterprise. This period coincided with the emergence of the Internet and the companies which formed our major gateways to it. The Internet itself was born as a decentralized network. It functioned peer-to-peer with interoperable services, But little by little, power has concentrated at numerous layers of its infrastructure and function, closing the space and allowing certain groups to accumulate power. Those companies grew vast, consolidating their market positions and extending tentacles into adjacent markets too. Particularly in the social media market, very, very big money is being made amid little competition. And these companies have often decided it's better to buy than compete, buying up smaller companies and absorbing bigger ones, crushing competition, and gaining control over huge swathes of the information ecosystem. In addition to piles of money, these companies have mountains of highly profitable data, which is even more profitable due to these mergers and acquisitions. The sheer quantity of information companies like Meta have is astonishing and not well understood. Your every click, keystroke, linger, like, or share on Facebook and Instagram can be cross-referenced and analysed. Ditto Alphabet! your search terms on Google and your activities on any site with Google ad services or YouTube videos embedded. All of this puts them at an unthinkable advantage over other companies. Our data is a huge asset and it sits at the very core of the ad tech profit model these companies rake in their billions from. And the bigger they are, the more they know. So the current market, characterised by these entrenched centralizations of power, dictates that we, as individuals and as a global society, keep using the same services, staying on the same platforms, producing profit for those same companies, even if we're exploited, frustrated, or deeply opposed to the behaviors of that platform or the company which owns it. But nearly every jurisdiction in the world has a framework for controlling the concentration of market power, for avoiding monopolies and abuse of dominant market position, and for encouraging an environment of competition and user choice in every industry. How then did this happen? and on whose Watch. So hello Nick and Marta, thanks so much for joining us.
1: Hi, good to talk to you.
0: Hi Emily, thanks for having me. So Nick, how did we get here?
1: Well, that's a huge question because we're talking about really what has become the heart of capitalism worldwide really. I'm talking about monopoly power and that is basically corporations getting bigger and bigger and getting more and more power over the rest of us. There are many answers to that question. It's a problem, you know, as old as, you know, Adam Smith, the British economist, you know, hundreds of years ago was talking about monopoly power. Um, And uh, governments have from over the decades, over the centuries, sort of ebbed and flowed in their willingness, ability to tackle it. But in the modern age, we really can date it back to the 1970s. And there was this kind of ideological revolution, um, which came out of Chicago. And this is a kind of side story to the better known Chicago School story of kind of neoliberalism. This is a this is a chapter that was originally led by a fellow called Robert Bork. And what he said was, if we're talking about corporations, we should stop worrying about their power. We should stop worrying about the public interest. We should stop worrying about the interests of workers and stakeholders and so on. And we should narrow the focus down to just two things, really. One is uh, the internal efficiency of corporations measured by economists, and the other was the interests of consumers. And uh, the argument here was that if if corporations are allowed to merge, there are these economies of scale and scope, and these are what economists call efficiencies. And these efficiencies will then trickle down to consumers, and everybody's a consumer, and everybody will benefit. And that's uh, end of story. That was a typical kind of Chicago school logic. Mm. Um, Of course, this was absolutely loved by many, um, corporations that wanted to get bigger and merge and become monopolists. And they started funding think tanks. Um, and they started, you know, giving courses to judges in the United States. And, uh, so the idea sort of started spreading in the United States and then they, in the 1970s, and they, they kind of took over the thinking and, uh, and it spread to Europe and, and, and worldwide sort of from the eighties, from the nineties. And, Really, the brakes came off the sort of you know in the past, regulators had worried about corporations getting too big, not least because dominant corporations and monopolists have immense political power and they 're a threat to democracy um, and So, when the brakes came off, then it was really open season, and um, one of my favorite statistics is that you know, a lot of people think the European Commission is, uh, you know, a doughty fighter against monopoly power. But this statistic is that since 1990, there have been about 8,000 mergers, mergers being, you know, big companies joining together to get even bigger. There have been 8,000 mergers notified to the European Commission. And of those, only 30, three zero, that's less than half a percent, have actually been prohibited. Um, So they have just let this stuff happen. They've let corporations get bigger and bigger. And these acquisitions by big tech firms um, that should never have happened in a million years in retrospect, they were just allowed, they were just waved through and they just said, this is efficient. And, you know, Google gets all this data, it's efficient, it can use it. So we've kind of been blinded by this, by this ideology that emerged in the 1970s.
0: Right. So we've got one big interest group saying, "Never mind the interests of people as humans, Let's look at them as consumers and never mind people as workers. Let's look at them as consumers. So who let that happen? Where where were the counterweights? Who should have acted and when and why didn't they?
1: Well, I think there's, uh, (laughs) as usual, there are loads of people to blame. Um, I mean, I think a lot of people tend to see this um, or may may be tempted to see this as a left-right issue. You know, the Democrats on the one side and the Republicans on the other in the United States and, you know, other left-right divisions in other countries. But in fact, this was something that really came to be embraced by both sides. And I'm again, I'm talking about the United States because the United States was kind of the originator of these ideas and which spread worldwide. But basically you had the Democrats started imbibing these ideas. Um, they liked them because, um, partly because corporations were giving them a lot of funding. Um, and also partly there was this kind of third way phase of governments around the world involving Bill Clinton and in other countries, Tony Blair and Gerhard Schröder in Germany and you know, various countries around really kind of took up this idea that we need to, uh, you know, we need to accept these, the, you know, the, this sort of fact of life that governments need to get out of the way and they need to let sort of businesses do what they do best and not interfere too much and deregulate and cut taxes. And, you know, taking the brakes off anti-monopoly, um, you know, antitrust uh, policy was, was really part of that idea. And it, until the obama administration in the united states this was accepted policy i mean google was you know basically had the keys to the, to the obama white house And it was only after sort of um, in the Trump, from the beginning of the Trump administration, they started doing a little bit. But now the Biden administration has made a dramatic turn away from, and he has, Biden himself has explicitly rejected the ideas of Robert Bork, and he's made a whole series of changes in government. Um, So we are at the beginning of a period of change. It's obviously immense forces that um, are pushing in in, in the wrong direction against kind of humanity, if you will. But um, but we are at the beginning of what looks like a, a very interesting uh, sea change, and anything we can do to sort of encourage this, I think, will be will benefit people around the world.
0: Right, and we're seeing that market dominance, particularly acutely in digital markets, and in the regulation of of internet monopolies and internet companies, is it that their power concentration is acute, or is it that the effects of it are more acute, and that's why we're aware of it?
1: Oh, the power concentration is horrendous. It's, um, you know, I mean, when I use the word monopoly, um, there's kind of two, two ways of thinking about it. One is the sort of dictionary definition, and that is, you know, one single seller in the marketplace. And, you know, anything else that isn't a single seller doesn't count. And then there's, you know, uh, a single buyer. And there are all these horrible words like oligopoly and monopsony and so on. But I try and avoid all those words and just use the word monopoly. It's not ideal but use the word to talk about power, to talk about market power. You can have five or six players in a market, um, you know, selling oil or selling, you know, or or trading commodities internationally, or supermarkets, or big tech companies, and they can have immense power, even at the same time as there are other competitors out there, there are other companies, there are several of them. So big tech, it is especially especially concentrated. I mean, if you look at um, online advertising, which is a massive industry globally now, I think it's about $600 billion a year. Um, This is, uh, you know, half of that, over half of that is taken up by just Facebook and Google alone. And they have Mm -hmm. immense power to dictate terms to, you know, they're sort of intermediaries between buyers and sellers. um, And they have immense power to dictate terms to each side um, and they've got this kind of arbitrary power. You know, Amazon is another clear example. Amazon is, is you know, in my, even though the dictionary wouldn't say that Amazon is a, is a monopolist and you'll always get people saying, oh, look, there are other players out there. So Amazon isn't a monopoly. For me, when I use the word monopoly in terms of market power, Am- Amazon is an immense monopolist and it is um, crushing workers. It is crushing, you know, today's, um, as we speak, make Amazon payday. And um, there's enormous activity around the world in lots of different countries. Fighting, trying to fight back against the Amazon, the power that Amazon holds over workers. But if you talk, you know, to people who are trying to sell on the Amazon platform, it's absolutely shocking the conditions that are imposed on them, Um, and there's nothing Mm. they can do because they have to be on Amazon, they have to be selling there. And Amazon, if it, you know, with a twitch of an algorithm, it can, it can destroy their business overnight, and that is immense power, and it inflicts immense fear. On those using the platform so yeah big tech is a particularly dangerous and particularly intense form of monopoly but that's not to distract from the fact that there are monopolies all around us in every sector now
0: absolutely and in the internet sector we're talking about the chicago school we're talking about the us and and europe we've seen this very hands-off approach which has created huge harms marta is it the same story in the global south has the state been interventionist for example in mexico where you work
2: Um, Because the monopolies and the tech giants are actually not located in the global south. And that has a lot of implications. Having the monopolies elsewhere have implications in human rights. Because we're talking about internet, not just about this, you know, market where people can sell and buy things. But we're also speaking about internet, which is a space, which is an instrument, a tool that people have to vindicate themselves to express themselves to identify themselves with others to coordinate to protest you know to take part of the civic space so because of that uh, having these huge corporations in the global north that actually dictate the rules that are going to be followed in the global south has a lot of uh, issues and yeah privacy issues uh, freedom of expression issues etc so the history here in at least in Mexico and Latin America which is where where I'm from, which is a human rights region that I work with um, we can see that television and radio were the first you know telecom industries that were sort of regulated by the state because these were infrastructures that the state was using to, You know, to sell propaganda, to try to tell people what to do, to sell this official narrative about what they were doing as governments. And they started to say, okay, we have to stop these monopolies because democracy is also the ability of people to have access to information that is not only propaganda from the governments. So we have that, and they try to uh, regulate the internet as if it were the radio and the television, which is a horrible idea, because in radio and television, you have these broadcasters, these, you know, maybe paid uh, broadcasters that are selling a story, an official narrative. And with internet, because I said it's an instrument, it's a tool, we are not only users, we are not only consumers, we are creators, we are active people with agency that are deciding on whatever we want to publish, whatever we want to, you know, consume in terms of information, the so it's different. I think these monopolies that were created elsewhere. And when you were asking Nick the question, who let it get here or how did we get here? Um, I think the people that were, were the champions and were the, the most benefited by this, which are global enterprises that benefit from the exploit of people in the global south that have that are different that we have different rules different needs different priorities and we are seeing an internet that is being shaped only by people that are in other more privileged contexts <laughs>
1: Can, can I add something to that as well? I think that it's also useful to think there, there's kind of two ways of think about this. This is kind of, um, you know, rich countries versus the global south is one sort of prism through which you can look at this, um, you know, big tech companies headquarters in basically the United States. But another way of looking at it is that, you know, we're in a fight here. This is people in both the global north and the global south, ordinary people against a very small transnational elite located internationally, located everywhere, that the shareholders of the big tech corporations. So I think it's a, you know, it's a very important fight. And again and again, you know, dealing with people who come up against the power of Google, up against the power of Amazon, I hear two words again and again. One is fear. They're really afraid of the monopolist because what I was saying earlier, you know, they can just wink out your business overnight. They can destroy you. But the other word is serfdom. Um... People do feel they. Like, this is really people talking from the gut. And these are people independently, unprompted. They're just saying, we feel like serfs. We feel like we are peasants um, who are in the face of a, of a giant kind of oligarchical landlord. And there's nothing we can do in face of their power. And this is true in rich countries and poorer countries.
0: That is fascinating. And I think there is something very powerful to be said, about the contribution of particularly digital monopolies to global inequality and the creation of of billionaires. Um a lot of the world's richest men have made their money from from these digital companies. um and i'm I'm wondering what you two think about the ways in which I say concentrations, but the image of coagulation just keeps springing to mind, the kind of coagulation of this ugly power. How does it affect the way that society functions? The the relationships between types of power, not just government and business, but business and civil society, or civil society and government. What what are the distortions we're seeing?
2: So the user is thought out uh, within a cosmovision of people that are in the global north. They're not thinking in of the people that are in the global south, and also people in the global south are not the same. We have different uh, languages. We speak different. Yeah, we we have different types of expressions. So having in mind all the different users and situations will allow us to also see why monopolies are very dangerous to democracies. And also the democracies are not the same. We have these fake democracies with authoritarian regimes that are actually... um, have alliances with these monopolies to also shape their power locally. These governments are exploiting, are using the platforms to hold their their governments to hold up their power. So that's why it's important to try to see the monopolies not just in from a users or from a market perspective, but from a human rights issue because it's shaping the way we see each other is shaping the way we tolerate people. We see pluralism, we identify with others. So yeah, it's a huge mess.
1: Yeah. And I, I, I would add that, you know, the power they have is this, this arbitrary power. I mean, getting a little bit theoretical, but over hundreds of years, the rule of law has evolved to curb the power of kings and queens and, and autocrats, you know, monarchs who just have arbitrary power to do what they like, flick their fingers. If you annoy them in any way, they can just flick their fingers and, and destroy you. And, and and this is really what the power that these this arbitrary power that that monopolists like Amazon have, they can just um, you know, they can just decide that they don't you know, they can change an algorithm, they can discriminate against anybody. And there's loads of cases of of algorithms just discriminating against poor people, discriminating against women, discriminating against people on, on religious basis. You know, you have no alternative. If you want to go on Facebook and connect with your friends, you have to, you know, there's nowhere else to go. And so they can impose whatever conditions they like on you. And they, they impose conditions that enable them to just basically steal your, all your most intimate data. And then broadcasted around the world to whoever. So it could be criminals, it could be anybody. Um, And it does have intense personal costs. Digitalization is conferring enormous power on these unaccountable digital firms. And, um, you know, the the, the digital firms come, you know, they're based in in the United States, but we must remember they're harming the United States as well. Um, it's not just that this is America against poor countries, it's, it's harming Americans, um, as well as it's harming Colombians and Tanzanians and, and you know, Indonesians. Um, so it's, it's, there's no, there's nothing good out of this dominance. It, it, it's all, um, you know, extremely harmful to citizens all over the place, including in the countries where these big companies are based.
0: Right. And it's so interesting that for much of the 20th century, you know, onlookers and political theorists were so worried about government surveillance the panopticon and, you know, the propaganda and the big issues of the 20th century. Yeah. And this century, you know, not even creepingly, sort of thunderously, we have ended up with private sector surveillance, yeah. surveillance capitalism, which is an enormous amount of power. And I, I agree that it harms Americans, um, but there are differentiated effects when it comes to regulation. Because as Malta says, not only can these companies work closely with political actors, um, but regulators in Europe particularly with the Digital Markets Act, which we'll be talking about a lot during this series, they've got a a stronger check, let's say, and more resources and more power than maybe a regulator in Mexico might. So as as the issue of regulation unfolds, how differentiated are the effects of that regulation going to be?
2: So I think that the impacts are going to be abominable for people that are not part of the conversation. As you said, Emily, the big regulation is happening right now in basically in the US and in Europe. And one big mainstream activity our legislators are doing in Latin America and, of course, in other contexts, but w- what I know about is in Latin America, is that they love to copy paste whatever happens in other more powerful context because they think it's going to work, they think it's the same, it's going to have the same effect, it's going to have the same enforcement. And that's a lie because you don't have the same effects. For example, when when you were talking in the previous question about which are the disparities in power within, even within civil society organizations that work in this topic in Europe or in US or here in Latin America, what I have seen is that, for example, the organizations that worked in the regulation of Europe in the DMA, DSA, were organizations that maybe didn't have a lot of pluralism and a lot of, uh, you know, inclusion in the way they are constructed or are built. Meaning that people, where are the migrants? Where are the, peop- where are the people of color? Where are the people that don't speak your language? Where are the people that are oppressed in other countries, such as not only LGBT community, but also Afro-descendants, also, um, yeah, minorities that we don't even see because it's not around us. So if those people are not part of the conversation, we're going to have biases from within. And if these biases, if you say, yeah, civil society participated in these conversations, which civil society, which are the characteristics of of the civil society? It's not only about the regulation itself, but when we say civil civil society has to take part in these conversations, we have to deconstruct the way we think about civil society itself, because it's not the same. We have to be aware of, yeah, more power and how impacts are different in contexts that are a million years, you know, separated.
1: Uh, I totally agree. And, you know, who's at the table? You know, the, the old saying, if you're um, not at the table, you're on the menu. <laughs> I, I think um, that's, you know, it, it, it's absolutely true that the voices have tended to be kind of, you know, a very particular set of, of voices. And there's two things. I mean, one is um, there is this competition establishment in Europe and in other countries which is basically made up of, you know, very clever academics and lawyers and regulators. And they're all talking this Chicago school talk. And um, even so, even in the richest countries, um, it's very exclusive. It's very technocratic. It's um, And they kind of set up the rules so it's really hard for civil society organizations to even get it, get to the table, to even have their say. You have to have standing in Europe to be able to make certain kinds of submissions on competition policy. And you have to speak their language and you have to use their often ridiculous economic arguments if you're going to get them to listen to you. And if you're, if you're not, you're just kind of, um, you know, you're excluded and you're out of the picture. And I think that's one of the big problems is civil society has, um, in, in, in these debates, has become, you know, p- because the paradigm, the ideology of this competition establishment has become so pro-monopoly and has become so ineffective, basically. Civil society has basically said, well, this is a, a you know a neoliberal tool or a useless tool and we're just going to ignore it. But because it gets ignored, Um, That neoliberal characteristic that, you know, the Chicago school pro-monopoly bias of all these important, what these people are doing um, remains in place. And so it's a kind of vicious vicious circle, you know, because it's pro-monopoly, it gets ignored. And because it gets ignored, it stays pro-monopoly. So I think we need to break this vicious circle um, and we need to break it, you know, in Europe, in rich countries, but also, you know, in in, in the global south as well, we need to get people to have a seat at the table. Um, I, I do w- One last thing I would say about this is that I think that um, when we're talking about solutions, so there was this Facebook whistle- whistleblower, Frances Haugen, who um, released some extraordinary sort of data from inside the organization. Um, one of the things that she said was that content moderation, where you've got hate speech and incitement to vi- violence and so on, Facebook invested a lot in the United States. It, invent, it invested quite a lot in Europe um, and inv- invested very little, if not nothing, in countries where there are different languages. And so basically, you know, hate speech and, and all this sort of stuff, it's still terrible in the United States, but it is somewhat curbed by the fact that they're being watched and pressure is put on them. But in places, you know, you have. Stories of Facebook being, you know, inciting genocide in being used to incite genocide in Myanmar and and you know vigilante mm-hmm. justice in Ethiopia and the civil war situation, and so you know there is this incredible sort of inequality of yeah you know, how it's how it's rolling out, and so you right. know how I think a global movement is needed to try and tackle this this issue, and it has to focus on power. If you don't tackle power as a first order of business, then what we're going to be doing, we're going to be complaining about the behavior of companies like Facebook. We're going to be complaining about their, you know, their activities, but we're not, we're just going to be like, you know, little dogs snapping at the heels of giants, um, you know, making a lot of noise, but Mm -hmm. not really having, having much influence. So we need to go directly and tackle this issue of power. And I think then that will open up space for, all sorts of civil society organizations all around the world. And I think that's a really sort of good strategic way to try and tackle this immense and evolving problem.
0: Right. And Marta, unless I'm mistaken, Article 19 Mexico very recently did a whole load of research on content moderation in Latin America, right?
2: Yeah, it's an investigation we launched with the National University of Mexico. It's about artificial intelligence and how... Content moderation, content curation, prioritization affects differently uh, certain groups and populations in situations of greater vulnerability. Mm. Um, So this is what I'm I'm talking about when I'm saying that not all people are affected the same way. Let's ask who is shaping the policies, the, the content moderation practices and policies of digital platforms. Of course, there are people that are not part of these conversations that have other priorities, and that's fine. So whatever what we are saying as part of this um, anti-monopoly movement is okay. So let's give people leverage. Let's give people autonomy. Let's give people some kind of um, bargaining power to say, okay, if you digital platform are not interested in who am I, what am I, what am I saying, and you're not interested in providing me a platform for the use of the civic space. Okay, then I'm going to find another one. So that's why the fight against monopolies in in the internet is so important. Because if we know that digital platforms are not going to solve the problem because they have had years to do it and they don't care, they don't care. So people have to have the power back. And this is only going to be possible when the market allows for more players and we have different choices in what whatever we want to consume online
0: right because in a fully functioning market you would be able to vote i'm going to say with your feet because obviously these services are are free it's difficult to vote with your wallet a lot of the time um is the wind really changing in this debate we've got the biden administration saying things that feel pretty positive we've got the digital markets act and its its sister legislation the digital services act it feels like the wind is changing. What scale is this awakening on?
1: I, I would argue that we are at the beginning of a dramatic period of change. Cool. Um, what's happened in the United States, what the Biden administration has done, is not an isolated act of a, just a new president with some new ideas. This is the culmination of a remarkable Um, anti-monopoly movement that started off in the United States about 10 years ago. So we had the Chicago school starting off in the 70s, ruining everything. Now we've got this remarkable anti-monopoly movement in the United States that started building up this whole new story. Um, You know, let's forget about efficiency and consumer welfare and let's bring back our focus on power. Let's bring back our focus on workers, on the public interest, on the interests of citizens with rights, and let's bring them right into the frame. Um, and so you had this this movement started, and they, they, they were just, a, it was a really a small band of people, um, but they were radical. They, were, they, they combined radicalism with expertise. They were telling a completely new story, going back to old American history. The United States has a long grassroots history of um, anti-monopoly activism, um, but they were It was a transformative story, and and, you know you started getting a lot of media attention, huge amounts of media attention in the United States. And that story has now gone mainstream, and um, it has. You know, it's mostly the Democrats that have taken it over, but there's quite a lot of support for it among the Republicans, even among the Trumpy, some of the Trumpy Republicans up up to a point. Um, So you had Lena Khan, for example. She was one of the radical new breed of anti-monopolists. And last year, the Biden administration appointed her at the age of 32 to be the head of the Federal Trade Commission, which is the main anti-monopoly arm of the United States. And at the same time, Biden appointed other members of this radical anti-monopoly movement to top positions. And uh, he also mandated that this new philosophy be rolled out all across the government departments. He made this executive order. And so it, it is a very, very deep See change that's happened there, and it is the result of a civil society movement. Over and now, I'm talking about in Europe. So, I I'm a co-founder of the Balanced Economy Project. We are trying to set up an anti-monopoly movement in Europe, and um, it is really only just started go, going getting going this year. There've been lots of organizations working against the power of big tech and and so on, but we're this is an an, an organization that's an anti-monopoly movement that goes beyond big big tech and covers everything from agriculture to you know, funeral services, or you know, whatever economic sector you're you're in, and we see regulators in other parts of the world, whether in the United Kingdom or in Brazil or in Australia, are starting to take notice of what's happening in the United States and starting to um, get much more radical. Um, you know, the Indians, the Chinese as well, and so this is you know, it, it's kind of spreading. We we haven't had in other parts of the world the same kind of anti-monopoly movement with this shared ma- narrative um, that has really flowered, I think there's still a real kind of failure to see power and to, to see, among civil society, among journalists, among the general public, to see power and the need to break and disperse power. Um, but I think that's coming. I, I feel quite optimistic that we are at the beginning of a sea change. It's going to take many years before we get really, really big traction. The Digital Markets Act in, in Europe is, is, you know, it has many positive as- aspects. It's got a very long way to go. Um, before we we get really serious. But I think I'm very optimistic.
2: Yeah, and to add up on that, I think also it's important to mention that the work of the special rapporteurs on freedom of of expression at different regional levels, uh, for example, in the inter-American system of human rights, it's starting to be very aware uh, of the problems regarding freedom of expression and privacy in the digital sphere. So there's an actual interest in international law to, to talk about this, to be aware of who's part of the conversation, what needs to happen for people to be able to fully have access to their human rights, basically, wh- whenever they are exercised online. So I think it's uh, it's progress, definitely it's it's progress. Um, I also think the, the wind is shifting in our favor because more people are taking part of this conversation. As Nick said, a lot is happening, Uh, from a long time ago in the US and in Europe, but we are more aware in the global South. I'm not speaking, of course, of all the global South because I started this conversation saying that we're different, Uh, but at least in Mexico, at least in this part of uh, Central America, in a huge part of Latin America, we are interested in taking part in this conversation and to have more leverage. We are aware that digital platforms are not going to do their jobs. We're aware that state wants to regulate, to oppress, and not to give more power to the people. So we are trying to figure out ways to uh, overcome these monopolies without destroying our democracy. So that's why it's important to be part of spaces like these, but also spaces in which debates around how to regulate what needs to happen. uh, That's why we need to be there.
0: Amazing. Final, super quick question, just because I noticed we're using, we're all using metaphors like wind and sea, and we're talking about particular administrations and trends. And that all feels a little bit precarious to me liquids and the movement of gases, etc., that doesn't feel solid or sustainable. So so how do we embed these principles? How do we embed this interest in power without it being subject to Europe happening to be part of a certain trend at the moment or a certain government being in power in the USA? How do we how do we make these changes long lasting and sustainable? Because I think we can all agree that democracies can't take another Chicago school trend.
1: Yeah, I, I, I would say that um, it needs to become a movement. It needs to become an international movement. You can't just have regulators moving. You know, the next government could come along and change its policy. Um, mm. We need a new uh, a new story, a new shared story that looks at power and looks at the toolbox that can most directly target power and to focus on on this story. And I think with a shared story, Um, we can do an enormous amount. Of course, there are enormous forces arrayed against us and technology is evolving rapidly. But if we do not tackle directly and disperse and break up the power of big tech firms as a first order of business, then everything else we do is going to be just, you know, operating in the margins of their gravitational pull. But I think the good news is there is, a, there is a powerful shared story that needs to be adapted for every country, for every region. It's different for everybody. But, but there's a kernel of, of, of similar stories about power and, and the public interest and, and democracy that um, can spread very widely and we can build something very powerful, I think.
2: Absolutely. Yeah, and we have to dismantle the power, Uh, However we decide to do that, I think it's a strategy that has to incorporate a human rights perspective and an intersectional approach, but we have to do that. The only way people are going to be able to exercise their rights is when we see that we can be allowed to pick how we want to live. And so I think that's going to be how this is embedded, when we can decide.
0: That seems like a great place to wrap up. Thank you both so much for coming on the show.
1: Thank you. Great to talk to you.
0: Thank you. That is all for this episode of Taming the Titans. Thanks for listening. We hope you'll join us for episode two, when we'll be diving deeper into the murky world of social media. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. The social media platforms which mediate the exercise of human rights online. We'll be talking to the experts about the ways these companies violate and allow violations of human rights, about data and surveillance capitalism, and about the future of our voices online.